Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. It is April 28th, 2011, and my guest is Brian Kaplan of George Mason University. He blogs at our sister site, EconLog, and his latest book is Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. Brian, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks so much, so much for having me, Russ. Now, the central argument of your book is that kids are less burdensome and more fun than they appear. As a father of four, I'm sympathetic to that idea, but uh, for those people who might be less sympathetic, what's the basic idea? Uh, the basic idea of the book is this. It is true that parents push themselves very hard today. Uh, actually, they spend more time taking care of their kids than they did during the baby boom, surprisingly enough. Uh, but a lot of what they're doing is based on the idea that they have to do a lot of unpleasant things to their kids in order to protect their kids' future. Right? So you have to do a lot of different activities with them. You have to ride them very hard in order, so that they can succeed in today's tough competitive world. Uh, the kids often push back on this, and many people feel like, you know, if you're a decent parent, you have to make your kid unhappy now in a lot of ways in order to give your kid a decent future. And so a lot of what's going on is that people are doing things that aren't very fun, and they're, they're really stressing, they're stressing and stressing the relationship with their kids on the theory that if they do so, there'll be some long-run benefits. Okay, now, this brings us to the million-dollar question, which is, does all of this parental investment and parental effort and sacrifice actually pay off? Now, for thousands of years, people have really argued about this question, the nature-nurture question, how much of the similarity between parent and child is due to the way that children are raised, but they really didn't get anywhere. Uh, in versus, t- versus yeah. their genetic makeup. Yeah, versus their genetic makeup. But they didn't really get, a, get anywhere until the research that my book relies upon uh, started coming along, and it's been going on for about f- past 40 years. And here I'm talking about research on kids who are adopted and research on twins. Before we get to that data, those data and, and those studies, l- let's look at the basic argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, nature-nurture is off, you know, what it applies to is is an enormous set mm-hmm. of questions. It could be... How happy are you? Sure, sure. Uh, it could be how much income you make. It could be how responsible you are, how moral you are. How long you live. How long how, you live. How smart you right? are. Those are all uh, how smart you are. Those are all important questions of nature versus nurture. A lot of the things we do as parents don't divide neatly along mm-hmm. those lines. So before we get into the data, one of the issues, of course, is going to be you know, what are we actually measuring? Mm-hmm. Because as you, as you accept in the book – uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, most parents have a common sense reaction to empirical evidence, which is, what are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. I've got, I live with the evidence every day. I don't need your studies. Um, and of course, both parents and academic researchers have a tendency toward confirmation bias to eliminate evidence that violates their priors and, and biases and accepting all the evidence that, that that goes along with it. So before we get into the studies, do you want to say anything about just the question of uh, it, it seems pretty reasonable that what I do with my kids has an impact on them? Uh, right. Well, I mean, so, you know, you know, I mean certainly it has, you know, has an impact of some kind. Uh, a lot of what I talk about in the book is uh, precisely what kind is it and how long does it last? Right. So it's one thing to say that you see that you affect your kids uh, right now, and uh, you know, certainly I see that. Uh, everyone sees it. You know, so a child's misbehaving, you punish him, his behavior temporarily improves. Uh, but the question is, how long does that improvement last? Although you know, maybe, maybe I should just you know, finish up the, you know, on, you know, the foreword or like, what, what the argument is going to say. So, I mean, once you take a look at the adoption of twin evidence, uh, the big punchline, which is very surprising, is that Parents turn out to have surprisingly little effect on long-run outcomes on how their kids turn out. Long-run outcomes, again, in which variables? Well, let's get into it. Yes, yes, on, on, on almost all the things that parents care about, actually. So what I wound up doing in the book is looking at adoption twin evidence on, uh, on health, on intelligence, on happiness, on educational success, on occupational career financial success, on character, by which I mean 
things like honesty, kindness, work ethic, discipline, things that almost everyone thinks are good, on values. Uh, these are the you know, things where there's controversy about what's good, religion, politics, family values, that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and, uh, and all these areas, uh, the, to the effect of parents on how kids turn out turns out to be surprisingly small, which then brings me to the actual, you know, to the heart of the argument. So, you know, first of all, if it really is true that parents are not having a large long run effect on their kids, then a lot of the unpleasantness that we're current, that parents currently experience actually is really not necessary. Uh, you can responsibly and in total, and in good faith as a parent, uh, stop pushing your kids so hard and focus more on doing things that you enjoy. So if there's things that you really don't like and your child also doesn't like, then it does become a no-brainer to stop doing these. And then here's where the, the, the economics of the book comes in. I also say that once you adjust your parenting style to take out a lot of this unpleasantness, this basically means that the kids that you want are cheaper than you think. You can get a decent, uh, a decent, well-adjusted, successful uh, uh, child, uh, or your, your child will turn into a decent, well, 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 a successful, well-adjusted adult, even if you don't do a lot of this unpleasant stuff, which basically means that the kids you want are cheaper than you think. So maybe you should buy more. Stock up. So uh, this, uh, this argument, well, let's just look at the economics for a minute. Uh, I guess the modern version of this goes back to Gary Becker. Mm-hmm. Yes, who, exactly. Uh, to the horror of many treated kids in their dismissive way, quote, as a commodity mm-hmm. um, that you buy or sell. You're being a little bit – I saw you smiling. Yes. People at, at home can't see that Brian was smiling <laughs> when he said you ought to buy more. But obviously as an economist, when, when things get cheaper, and by cheaper we don't – we certainly don't want to just look at money. We want to look mm-hmm. at time, which exactly, is often exactly. a very important component right. and, of and, cost. And just the emotional cost. And the emotional cost uh, plus the benefits on the other side. Yes. Uh, if, if, the, if the costs go down, you – you would expect people to uh, choose to have more kids, mm-hmm. and yeah, exactly. you're, you're suggesting that's good advice. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, Gary Becker, like he did, you know, uh, blaze the trail for the, for the, for this kind of thinking. You know, he did did so much great work here. But there's just one big complaint that I have about what Becker did, and that's that he assumed, uh, without much evidence, that the that there really is a strong quality what he called quality quantity trade off yes, between he did. kids. Where if you have more kids, then they will then they will be worse kids. So they'll be better. But you'll be more. You know. So there's. See, I think. Let yeah, me try. I, let me try to. Yes. Say, as yes. having sat through um, with pleasure many of those lectures, the the argument would be that people choose as they get more uh, resources to have fewer. But higher quality children. Mm-hmm. Yes. Another offensive phrase to some people, but what he meant by that was, you invest more in each child, uh, where invest means time, it also means money, and um, it's certainly true empirically that richer societies have smaller families, and people, as they tend to get richer, don't tend to ha- across cult- with with at a point in time, uh, in, within a culture, people who have more income tend to have smaller families. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yes, that is true. Yes. And so, when you say you disagree with that, what part do you disagree with? Not the empirical mm-hmm. finding, I assume. Right. Well, what I agree with is, uh, or what I, what I disagree with rather, is uh, Becker's assumption that there is a strong quality quantity trade off. He basically just took it for granted. Uh, now, you know, and uh, at the time that he was, uh, you know, that he was, you know, wrote his Economics of the Family, it was around 1980, I believe. Uh, there already was starting to be quite a bit of evidence from adoption twin research. That this quality quantity trade off just was a lot weaker than what you know, economists and most people tend to think. Yeah, his and book sin- was, and since then, there's been a lot more research that, that backs this up. Yeah, his book that summarized a lot of this work and, and other work related to it is a treatise on the family, mm-hmm. which I think actually came out in the, I want to say 1981. I'm not 100% sure mm-hmm. about that. Uh, but, but you're saying he, he presumed that. Then you have a challenge, though, which is how do you explain the tendency? He was perhaps ex post explaining mm-hmm. it via this quality quantity mm-hmm. trade off. Mm-hmm. How do you explain it then? Uh, why do they're just because they haven't read your book? Mm-hmm. Is that why richer folks have smaller families? Well, let's see. I think I'd have to be a megalomaniac to think that just reading my book will massively con- uh, change everyone's mind. Uh, it's happened yeah, before, yeah. Brian, in the publishing world, <laughs> the academic world too. Yeah. Well, uh, well we, we should be we should, above we, it. Yes, we be we, above it. We shall see. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I think a lot of it is ba- uh, is based on this misperception that uh, you would be a bad parent if you didn't invest very heavily in your kids, and especially as people get richer, the you know the sense that you really need to push hard on your kids in order to make sure that they are able to have the same kind of lifestyle that you had. Uh, I think I think that is, that is a big part of what's going on. Uh, later in the book, I talk a lot about like the bad arguments about why family sizes declined and the bad arguments for why richer people have fewer kids. 
Uh, but I mean, maybe, maybe we should come back to that. So, yeah, to, well, mm-hmm. I, I would have said, I would have taken a different approach. So why don't you react to my, my argument, mm-hmm. which would be a lot of what parents consume from their children is not their children's happiness, although that's mm-hmm. certainly is part of it, but the pleasure they get in wearing their children as ornaments. Uh, this is a really appalling idea, I think, but I think there's some truth to it. So if you're, mm-hmm. if you're yeah, the status educated, symbol. what? The status symbol. Yeah, as a status like, symbol, yeah. or, or not as a status, that's the wrong way to put it. Just that, you know, if, if you swim in circles where the kids go to certain types of schools and mm-hmm. achieve certain types of things and have certain types of careers, you want your kid to be like that. You want to be comfortable in that social setting, and so you push your kid to do well at, at a high-quality school, and as a result, uh, you can hold your head high. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's definitely a factor in human nature, and surely that would be maybe part of the reason mm-hmm. that people want to send their kids to more expensive schools to have a, accoutrements and, and characteristics like musical ability and other musical skills that, that, that they pay for their children to learn, which might not be very good for their children, but the parents like it. Uh, that is possible. Uh, just the main thing is from most of the work on parental happiness, it seems like the time the parents spend pushing their kids isn't very fun for them. And you have no, to it's an investment. Based, based it's my an own, investment. Yes. Let's see. So again, if it's not an investment in the kids' long run future, so it's you're thinking, you're thinking that it's an investment in, in the parents' long run future. In, in the parents' long run future. It's an attractive argument. I'm not sure it's true, but I just think that was more consistent with your argument than that people misappreciate the mm-hmm. cost of benefits. That's all. Right. I mean, I'm maximizing I, I, I something different. They've got a different mm-hmm. set of values. Yeah, I mean, it could be. I mean, I, I mean, I, I would probably say not so much in the parents' long run future because people are going to forget uh, what your children were doing a few years ago. It might you might say it's an investment. You know, really, it's an effort to boost your current status or your status like, like like in in the in the short term. That's why people have that um, bumper sticker: "My kid's an honor yeah. student at such and such a." Why would you put that in your car? It's like, right. It's because yeah, 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 you that, feel good. That that does does make a lot of a lot of sense for us. I mean, I, I say no. That's that's probably is part of it. Again, though, I would think that without. The further thought that doing this stuff is going to give your children a much brighter future, that just the pain, the, the, the pain and conflict that are involved in pushing your kids to do things they don't want uh, you know, is, is, well, is quite a bit larger. I think than, it's easy to convince yourself of that, mm-hmm. uh, I suspect. Uh, but it might be true. So let's get mm-hmm. into whether it is mm-hmm. true or not. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Um, let's talk about what you've learned first from adoption studies and then twin studies mm-hmm. that, again, the argument here is that uh, the empirical evidence suggests to Brian, and I'm a skeptic, but not a big skeptic. I think it's a fascinating idea. Brian's arguing that that the time I spend with my kid trying to make him better at, at whatever better thing I'm, whatever I'm working on, whether it's sports, music, school, uh, character, religion, is fundamentally mostly a waste of time. It's a strong mm-hmm. argument. Mm-hmm. So let's hear the evidence. All right. So in, in- and you know, based upon the list of things you just said, uh, you know, there may be some exceptions. I like to, I like to mix them yes. all together. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, fair enough. So let's see. So first of all, let me just explain the, the idea of the adoption study. Yeah, how do they work? Okay. So you know, the, the basic problem is you go and see that kids in most families are like their parents, and kids are, on average, like their parents in basically every measurable way. So like, they're, they're, family resemblance exists for essentially every trait uh, on average. Uh, but then the question is, why does the family resemblance exist? Uh, most people tend and tend nowadays to think that it's based upon upbringing or what you could also call nurture or parenting. But depends how the kid turns yeah, out, of course. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, assuming um, it turns out well, the parents take pride and say, "Say yes, I did a good job." Right, but if uh, the kid turns out poorly, then uh, then all the neighbors say, bad "Oh, draw. well, yes." You know, bad draw from yeah. the urn is yes. what we say. <laughs> the neighbors <laughs> say, "Well, maybe if they if they tried a little bit harder." Yeah, exactly. If they hadn't been so let them watch so much television. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, so in a typical family where, you know, where parents both share their kids' genes and also they raise them in a certain kind of home, there's really no way to disentangle nature from nurture. You just can't say why it is that kids resemble their parents because there's two different forces that all, that come together. But researchers realize, wait a second, there's a special kind of family, families that adopt. In those families, if the child grows up to resemble the family that adopts him, you can't say heredity. Right? Well, you could, but it would be, be yeah, foolish. Yes, it would be foolish. <laughs> Lamarckian. Uh, yes, uh, you know, yes, I, well, <laughs> I guess Lamarck, it's basically a nurture effect, actually. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. Uh, all right, so, but what you can do is, if you, especially if you go and study thousands of families that adopt and see whether kids who are adopted by one kind of family rather than another turn out in a, in a systematically different way, then you've got very strong evidence that upbringing actually changed children. Yeah. Okay, so that's one, that's one method that you can use to, uh, to, to try to figure out uh, what's going on, nature and nurture. Uh, the other method that is used, actually, you know, more often, right, is uh, the twin study. 
Uh, here, this takes advantage of an interesting fact. Uh, there are two different kinds of twins. There are identical twins, actually like my first two sons, who share 100% of their genes, so they're, they are genetically identical. And then there are fraternal twins. These are twins who only share half their genes. They're no more alike than any two ordinary siblings. They just happen to be born at the same time. Right? So if you, if you take a look at the similarity of identical twins compared to the similarity of fraternal twins, this, is, this gives you a way of measuring how much genes matter. Basically, you add 50 extra percentage points worth of genes and see how much difference that makes. And, and here's the thing is, mathematically, it, once you do that, you can also see how much room, if any, is left for parents to be increasing the similarity to. Right. So these are two different approaches. And, uh, I understand that. Try okay. that again on me. All right, what so, about the parent part? Okay, so, so here's the idea. Uh, so step one is you can measure the effect of genes by seeing how much more similar identical twins are than fraternal twins. Uh, but secondly, in outcomes, yes, in a, like, in we a, know they're in very a, similar in, in appearance. Yes, in, in any yeah. in any outcome, uh, but you can then, and again, it's it's a little hard to do the math over a uh, little hard to do the math over the uh, Ethernet over but, the over the ether waves. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> uh, but but basically, what you can do is see how much room, if any, is left for parents to be doing uh, to be to, to be uh, how much how much how much room is if any is left for parents to be increasing the similarity further. Uh, so you know, so for example. If you see that there is a 0.85 correlation between identical twins and a 0.8 correlation between fraternal twins, you can say, huh, well, it looks like raising the, simil the genetic similarity by 50 percentage points only boosts the similarity by 0.05 in the correlation. And from there, you can say the, uh, the this, you know, that, that, you know, but the, the fraternal twins, uh, you know, so, you know, who share half their genes, uh, you know, it's 0.8 for them, but if uh, going up an extra point, uh, 50 percentage points only boosts it 0.05, then most of the similarity between the fraternal twins couldn't be genes either. Only it would have to be nurture. That yeah, yes, yeah. it would have it would have to be nurture. Okay, so, so that's interesting. Okay, so uh, most let's of it, uh, what almost all, you know, most of it. There's still a little room for, for yeah, nurture. Yeah, of for course. Nurture, Just a question before we go mm -hmm. on. Um, what's the it, of the twins born in the world? Mm -hmm. What proportion are, are, are uh, fraternal versus uh, identical? Okay, that's a great question. So basically, in Western countries, it's basically one third identical, two thirds fraternal. Okay. All right. So um, tell me about the adoption studies first. Okay. Uh, well, let's, let's see. Well, so, I mean, once, once we're thinking about traits, it's probably it's easier to actually making uh, mix, mix, mix it up, mix, okay. mix it up. So uh, let me just go over so, you know like you know some of my favorite studies. So for health. Here we are. There's actually fantastic data because Scandinavian countries have been keeping really careful records for over a century. So you can go to Denmark and Sweden, and they've got data on first of all twin, you know, like whether or not someone is a twin, who their twin was, going back to the 19th century. And they've also, and also we know for people born in the 19th century when they died. I right? guess if you're born in the 19th century, you're dead by now. Usually, <laughs> not easy. necessarily. Actually, maybe close. There might oh, be the 19th century, absolutely. Yes, yes. There might be no. Certainly among twins. Oh no, you yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah, you could be. Yeah, but you know, three percent of the population are twins. So yeah, that, like, it's you know, small so, number. Yeah, pretty much sure. everyone. Right. So, and, so what, you, what, you can, what you can see there is uh, you can use this twin method to you know, first of all look at how you know what's the similarity of how long identical twins lived. Compare that to the similarity of how fraternal twins lived, and then use that method to find out how much difference, if any, did parents make for life expectancy. We also have some studies though, of, of kids of twins that were separated. Uh, yes. another piece of uh, way yes, to yeah, yeah. So basically, that combines adoption and twins. Right. Um, so yeah, those, yeah. those studies are, are are obviously smaller. Right. Yeah. So those are generally in the like the good ones of those are in the hundreds of people in the studies rather than in the thousands or sometimes tens of thousands uh, for you know, for the other approaches. Uh, yeah, we, we, but actually, I'm going to talk about uh, one or two of those. Uh, so let's as, start. But, as, as but on health, right now, now, you know, so on, so on health, uh, you know, the result that you get from the very highest quality studies is that parents actually have no effect on how long people live. Right now, you might say, "Well, do parents really believe this?" Well, here's the thing: if you think parents affect smoking and smoking affects how long you live, parents should affect how long you live. If you think the parents affect diet and diet affects how long you live, then parents should affect how long you live. What this stuff does is, out of everything parents are doing. The total effect you see of everything they're doing appears to be zero. Well, that's a problem, though, I, I, in that that makes it sound like it's stronger because it looks at everything they do. But, of course, when you go across everything, you're adding noise, measurement problems, correlations. Uh, I'd be much more interested in smoking, um, uh, okay, so which is hard to isolate. That. And yes. I, I, I well, say we, that because mm -hmm. I think most people, uh, when they think about – the burden, although it's an interesting issue in and of itself, mm -hmm. when we think about the burden of parenting, having your kid eat their broccoli is not one of the hardships. 
So I'm not sure this is the... I, I do actually know a lot of parents who find it hardship. Well... But, uh, <laughs> I know parents with kids who make every meal a pain. <laughs> it, it does. It's always it, a struggle. It does happen, but I, I think there's a... Um, there's no doubt a desire, and this has nothing to do with parenting, uh, there's a desire to think that we're in control of our destiny on mm-hmm. all, every dimension. So the idea that I can live longer by eating well, exercising, makes me feel good, uh, but it might not be true. It could be overwhelmingly mm-hmm. genetic, and certainly many things are genetically uh, propensi- or, or I'm mm-hmm. stuck with. Propensity of cancer, propensity to obesity, propensity mm-hmm. uh, metabolism, um, et cetera. But, but we also understand that there are some clear environmental issues, mm-hmm. which smoking would be the most dramatic, mm-hmm. where you can affect your lifespan. All right. Well, I mean, you know, this gets us to one of the most crucial issues with these studies, which is when you see the parents don't when you see the parents don't affect how long how long kids live. One thing you could say is, I guess, I guess that the uh, tobacco industry is right after all, and cigarettes don't yep. cause cancer. Uh, that is probably not the right way to yeah, interpret the results. The right way to not. interpret the results is parents have little or no effect on whether or not their kids smoke. Right, and when you see that smoking runs in families, this is actually because there is a genetic propensity to smoke, which is passed on from parent to child. Right now, uh, when people, how do you know that? Yes. Uh, the- well, see, there are studies uh, studies of that. So basically, like you know, so, so twin studies of sm- twin studies of smoking, where you see, or, or you know, if one identical twin smokes, how likely is how likely is his, his his twin to smoke versus for fraternal twins? If one fraternal twin smokes, is how likely is the other fraternal twin to smoke? And we just do the same say the same exact approach. There's actually quite a lot of research on the genetics of smoking, genetics of alcoholism. What are the magnitudes uh, of see. those change? Because uh, one of the other issues mm-hmm. here is you find a significant impact. Uh, Question is how. how Significant is it in yes. real sense? All right, so let's see. So, you know, so he, uh, here, here, my you know, here, my memory is not strong for, for, for like for, for it. But uh, we're down a couple uh, yes. tables into a right, couple but, particular studies. I mean, Fair enough. But not, I mean, I mean pretty, but, okay, but, but, but you know, like, like, like roughly, roughly speaking, uh, you know, suppose that you know, like you know, suppose that we make smoking a continuous variable. So, like, it's how many cigarettes you smoke. That's yep. the you know, the, you know, that's the easiest way to do it. So we can say if your twin smokes more than you know, your identical twin smokes more than eighty percent of the population, a rough estimate is that the uh, your identical twin who was ra- who was a, who was separated at birth, which is a good way of thinking about uh, like you know the, the, the size of the effect of genes, would probably probably smoke more than say like sixty five percent of the population, okay. or something like uh, that. An effect, an, effect. Yes. an impact. Right. You know, well, yeah, uh, Whereas where, where your, your adopted sibling, you smoke a lot, your adopted sibling probably be in the range of like, you know, your adopted sibling would smoke more than about 50 to 55% of the population. So it's anywhere from no more, no different at all from being raised in the same house to a little bit more likely. Yeah, I, I think uh, we've talked about this on the program before. I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm fascinated by this idea, which, uh, of course, you're skeptical of, and I am as well, this idea of modeling. Mm-hmm. The idea that somehow if I do something and my kids see me do it, they'll mm-hmm. emulate it. When, when in fact, they might see me do it and decide they want to do the opposite. Yes. Right? I, I play the violin. I try to force them to play mm-hmm. the violin. They hate the violin. I smoke. My kids think it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. They don't smoke. It's not like they go, oh, dad's cool. He smokes. I'll smoke too. <laughs> right? It doesn't work that way. My, my father was a smoker. Thank God he, he stopped and he's still alive at 81. He's a very heavy smoker when I was a child, and I thought it was horrible. I thought it was a horrible habit. I vowed mm-hmm. never to smoke. I never have. But, of course, he never tried to get me to smoke. He never said, <laughs> hey, you know, this is nice. You ought to check this out. Now, yeah, so, be a man. He, what? Be a man. <laughs> he did not try that approach. He tried other things to get me to be a man. Um, That's actually a great question, Russ. So I talk about this in the book. Here's the thing is most adoption twin researchers, when they find – a small to zero effect of upbringing on how kids turn out. Just say, you know, well, that's that's you know, that's all there is to it. it. Parents don't change anything. But what I say in the book is the data is equally consistent with a theory where parents are about equally likely to change their kids in the way they want, or have it completely backfire and get the opposite of the result they desire. Right. So, right? and you know, now here's the thing: is from the point of view of how to raise your kids, it doesn't make that much difference because, like, either. Uh, it doesn't matter, or fifty-fifty legit chance of changing them the way you want, or changing right. the opposite. Uh, that isn't a very you know saying right. it's the something is a fifty-fifty chance of succeeding or backfiring. Total is, failure is, too. Yes. It's not like you see yes. a little bit. Yes, Neg- right? negative success. Your kids negative and a- you're, you're religious. Your kids an atheist or vice versa. Mm-hmm. It, it, and these are high variance mm-hmm. outcomes. They're, they're really that's an unattractive. That's an unattractive. Right, but outcome. in terms of making the research more intuitively plausible and more con- you know, and fitting people better to people's experience, I think this rebellion story does make a lot of sense. And I think it's true. Personally, Obviously. personally, I do believe. But there's a number of things I hate just because my dad and my brother like them. Uh-huh. You know, I, I can't stand the sound of a cheering crowd at a sports event because uh-huh. they loved it and it like, drove me crazy. Interesting. Uh, so, okay. I mean, I, I think if they weren't sports fans, I just wouldn't have strong feelings one way or the other about it. 
Uh, so, you know, so I mean, should we sort of go back to the... Yeah, let's go back. So let's move away right. from health. Let's move right. to the more... All right. Okay, so... I, again, I don't think... Uh, obviously, parents want mm-hmm. their kids to, to be healthy, and maybe they delude themselves a little bit about the value of nutrition mm-hmm. and exercise. Mm-hmm. Or just their ability to influence what and, their kids eat, which I think which is more what's going cetera, on. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, you don't give your kids sugar until they're until they're six years old, and then they become you know sugar maniacs. They, they get mm-hmm. out of out of the house while they're eating tri- you know um, Fruit Loops all day long. Um, yeah, so, so like the so next one I talk about is intelligence. Yeah. All right. So this is another one where it seems pretty clear parents really want to boost their kids' intelligence. Uh, this is actually one of the most what studied. Do you mean by issues. intelligence? What do I mean by intelligence? Yeah. Well. Uh, I mean, you might say, "What do you mean by strength?" Uh, you know, it's a, it's a it's a normal English word. Uh, it does not have mathematical precision, but basically, when we say intelligence, we mean something along the lines of ability to grasp new ideas. Uh, you know, the quickness with which you grasp ideas, the, the level of you know your ability to grasp complicated ideas at all. Okay. Uh, so uh, that's yes, fine. Yeah, I, I just yeah. thought maybe you meant IQ. Literally. Um, well, let's see. I know, like, it, it, well, here's the thing: is it, it is true that almost all the research uh, on intelligence is based on IQ tests. Uh, this would take us to a big, a separate area about like how good our IQ test is a measure of what we intuitively think of as intelligence. Yeah, uh, I have I've read a lot in this literature. I would say not perfect, but really good. But I say really that. I, I, I mean, I mean, but I'd say that's the wrong measure. I, th- I think let's take something that I think parents, most parents, don't sit around and say, "Gosh, I hope I can get." Um, Susie's IQ into the triple digits. Uh, they sit around and saying, "I hope Susie uh, is going to get a good SAT score." So right. So an SAT test, uh, you know, is an, is contrary to what the SAT sa- officially says, what the ETS says. It is an IQ test. It correlates as highly with IQ tests that are called IQ tests as IQ tests correlate with each other. That is what the SAT is. So does studying for the SATs is that a waste of time? Uh, studying for any IQ test improve, will improve your score. Uh, you know, like basic fact. Uh, so, we like so there's many, nurture. There's some yeah. nurture. Well, there's a, well, well. Let's see. There's an environmental fact. This doesn't mean that parents actually like parents telling you to study will actually boost your score. It may be that people don't listen to their parents. It's true. But if I uh, uh, but we're talking yes. here about mm-hmm. about unpleasant parenting. So I yes. I ride roughshod on my kid and I force him to take these practice mm-hmm. SAT tests. I may incentivize them with money, punishments, mm-hmm. sticks, carrots, saying if you don't do mm-hmm. well, you can't go to summer camp, you can't do X, Y, or Z. Right. Parents do this stuff. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, the, so the catch is that while you can... Can you tell well, me that well, it doesn't you, matter? You, yes, well, you can boost your score on, on any IQ test by practice. Uh, but two things. First of all, first of all, that, that effect generally doesn't last. There's what we call fade out, where after you do the prep class, you're, you know, it goes back to where you otherwise would be. But here's the other thing, is while parents occasionally do this and can do this, uh, I'll... The practice effect basically only works for a specific test. So if you go and give someone a test that they haven't seen before, then you know, which which is you know generally what IQ researchers want to do, then you uh, you actually can see what about all of the other uh, other other more indirect ways that parents might boost your IQ okay. just by being in an intellectually rich environment. Uh, totally agree. So okay. right. Uh, so, I, but I want to challenge your basic mm-hmm. idea that somehow mm-hmm. uh, parenting now could be easier than ever if we only mm-hmm. knew the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a limited number of high-quality universities in mm-hmm. America. There's a lot of kids who want to go to college today compared to 25, 30, mm-hmm. and 50 years ago. Parents obsessively want their kids to acquire the things that help you get into a good university. Mm-hmm. I think it's overrated myself, mm-hmm. but it, parents do care about it. Are you suggesting that that short-run effect – is somehow going to make it easier to parent. I should just ignore these. The mm-hmm. fact that I, the fact that I, that my kid's only going to do well on this SAT test, and a year from now it won't mm-hmm. do better. That that's irrelevant. I want my kid to get into a good school, and it's a pain in the neck to ride roughshod on him to get him to do the homework and the other work to get the good grades. And that's what the world's about. Well, Russ, I mean, if you want to skip skip straight ahead to educational success, yeah, let's that yeah, too. go ahead. All right, fine. <laughs> Okay. Now, here's the thing. So, like, as far as I know, there is no adoption or twin study of the rank of the school that you get into. <laughs> okay. So, and if, and if you care about that, you can always say you haven't studied it, therefore I can keep believing whatever I want. That's right. But, <laughs> but, let, me, but let me tell you about what has been studied. I, so. having, having said that, remember, I said I'm, I'm, I think yes, the whole yes, thing is a little overrated. It's, I'm just uh, reacting to the – I think it's a general parental urge. Right. So, there are a, a number of excellent studies of the effective parents on the total number of years of school that you finish. Okay, okay, so so you know what, like you know, whether you finish you know whether you finish high school, whether you finish college, how much you get, and what these studies generally find is a is a small effect of parenting on how many years of school that you get. So, uh, one one you know, excellent and very representative study is Bruce Sasserdote's study of uh, Korean war orphans who got adopted by American families in the fifties and sixties, 
And the punchline there is that if a kid got adopted by a family where the mom had one more year of education, that kid on average finished about five extra weeks of education. Okay, so that is something, and the study 10%. had... 10%. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the, yeah, a year, yeah, yes. 52, yeah. sort of, yeah, maybe like, a little more. Yeah, so like, you know, raise the education. parents by a certain amount, the, kids, you know, the kid goes up by about, like, about 10% of that. Uh, so, I mean, this is an effect, and, and the study is big enough. You know, there are over 1,000 kids in the study. You really can accurately measure and say there is an effect. It really is there. It's not just a fluke. But still, this does mean that the mom would have to have over 10 extra years of education to boost the kid's attainment by one year. Okay, so it is something... Uh, but, so two graduate yeah, degrees yes. would get your kid to finish high school as opposed to otherwise dropping yeah, out. Yeah, so that's, that, that, that's basically it. And, and, that, and, that's, pretty, that, and that's, that's pretty representative, actually. So again, you know, you know, what's going on here is this is measuring the effect of everything, everything that is actually done. Right? So it's measuring the effect of, you know, of, the, of the nagging, the modeling, uh, you know, the way, way, like if people with more education push their kids more into prep classes. Now, you know, here's what's really neat. Sasser also measured the effect of being in a richer or poorer family. And in his study, since, since these people were adopting in the 50s and 60s, it was a lot easier for poor families to adopt in those days. You only had to be 25% above the poverty line. And what Sacerdotes found is that, uh, adjusting for everything else, uh, being born into a richer family did not help how much education you got. It was not the case that richer families bought educational success for their kids. Interesting. Right. And uh, since we're on the study, uh, this, uh, he also looked at the effect of the family you adopted on, 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 on your adult income. And here he had one of the most amazing results, which is the kids adopted by the very richest families grew up to have the same average income as the kids adopted by the very poorest families. Growing up in a rich family does not teach you the secrets of uh, secrets of of success. It does not seem does not seem to uh, you know, like nepotism doesn't seem to wind wind up paying off uh, at least by the time that you're that you're thirty or so. And maybe the country is saved. It turns out. Well, I thought it was all just rich get richer, poor get poor. That's <laughs> a little more complicated than that. Interesting. Okay. Uh, yes. Well, what it's saying is that the reason why you know, income runs in family is actually heredity, right? contrary to what people want right. to hear. Yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting. Um, I, I want to. We could go through some more areas. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say to the listeners, uh, this book, like Brian's book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, is provocative. It's very clearly written, uh, and and the interested reader can go and look at the book and go into the more of the details mm-hmm. of these. Of these issues, which you go into, right. and if you've got Google Scholar and access to any kind of institution where you can check out academic research, I try to be as transparent as, as possible. So I try to make it really yeah, easy. There's nothing, for there's nothing to, intimidating yeah, about yeah, it, by the way. I don't mean to suggest the results. I don't mean to suggest it's some complicated thing. I'm just saying there's a lot of interesting things to say about it. We don't have time to go into, but I'd like to get your take on a, a meta issue related mm-hmm. to these studies, mm-hmm. not the particulars of a particular area. And then I want to ask you about some parenting, general parenting issues. Um, the the meta issue I want to ask you about is that there are a lot of social debates, uh, one of which would be how much time a parent uh, spends with, with their kid. Does daycare handicap a child? Mm-hmm. Does daycare give a child an advantage? Does it help a mom to stay at home or to work? There's all kinds of issues here of modeling, social issues, et cetera. That literature, which I'm sure is a mix of twin adoption and non Mm-hmm. adoption stuff, is full of biases by the researchers who have an axe to grind. Some of the researchers want to show that if your mom works and you're stuck in daycare, you're going to end up a criminal. The others want to show that if your mom works and, go, and you're, you have the privilege of being in daycare, you become this independent, strong person. A lot of this literature is junk. It's fake science. It's bad social science. It's bad research. Uh, how comfortable are you with this general literature in terms of the the biases of the people doing it? Hmm, that's, that's a good question. So what I'd say is this. Um, adoption twin research, while it can be used in any field, it basically got a start in psychology. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I do blog now for, psych- for uh, Psychology Today, but I'm not a psychologist. But play my, one on, on but, the web. Yeah, but my impression <laughs> of the kind of people that these researchers are is they're the kind of people who started off wanting to think that upbringing did matter a lot. They're not people who... From an early age, wanted to think that heredity was really important. Uh, you know, they were, they were, you know, they wanted to fit in with their other, uh, you know, humanistic and, and generally left-wing colleagues in psychology. But when they started doing these twin adoption methods, they got results that were not what they expected. Right? And I think there, there was a lot of soul searching by people when they first started at least getting these results, and it wasn't what they wanted to hear. But a lot of people soldiered on and published stuff that they weren't that comfortable with. And here's the thing: also, there were a lot of social sanctions for publishing this stuff for early sure. on. You know, so I mean, I think you know, I think at least a common profile of an adoption or twin researcher in psychology, anyway, is someone who didn't want the stuff to be true 
and felt like their other colleagues would dislike them and look down on them and possibly not give them tenure uh, because sure. they because they did this kind of research and they published it anyway. Which now, suggests now, now, of course, more, once you do it for twenty years, you may you change, did, your, yeah, your yeah. attitude may change. But and it suggests it's more robust than you might otherwise. Yeah, think, yeah, I think if that's, I, yeah, I think if so. that's true. Right now, also I know. I mean, one difference between you and me, Russ, is that I I, I generally put more confidence in empirical research, and when Correct. I have a complaint, I want I want it to be more specific than people, people are, are biased. Just, yes, when people, people are biased. do sloppy work. Yes, so you know, so like you know, my my main complaint. It's a cheap you know, shot. You know, so my, my complaint about like child development stuff uh, that doesn't do adoption twin research. You know, it isn't just that it's biased, but that they they consistently ignore something that we have strong reason to believe is important, which is heredity. Right. So, I mean, if you just go and do the study and you say that kids who are in daycare do worse or better, it's like, well, that doesn't even – that just ignores the possibility that maybe people put their kids in daycare have different genes and yeah. that their kids would have been different would have been different even if they raised by different families. So I tend to want, want to focus on, like, tell me specifically what's wrong with this approach. Although, you know, of course, it could just be, you know, corruption. Like, they're so biased that they actually fake the data. Again, uh, there's some of that. Yeah, there was I, a, I, I, some I famous believe, twin yeah, studies, yes. I think, that had some problems. Yeah, yeah. With. Cyril, well, Cyril Bird is famous. You know, like one one particular guy. Yeah. Uh, the other, there was there was controversy about what he what he did. But the thing is, is that his work was totally normal in what it found. There were many of uh, many other studies by people where no one questioned their integrity that that were consistent with it. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, I would say, I mean, I'm overall I'm comfortable with the results. I mean, also in the book, I tried to be very transparent and say and, and pointing out any uh, major counterexamples that I found. So again, I mean, like, like, uh, I, I will say so. I'm, I'm, I am a human. You know, so, like, you can say I have biases too. But at least, I mean, I did make an effort to point out explicitly where the studies that are getting different results. Uh, like, like you know, probably the one that I spent the most time thinking about is there. There is a new, uh, cutting edge body of research on the children of twins that tries to uh, essentially combine like the usual twin methodology with the fact that so that the children of twins. Wind up having a different environments depending upon, uh, like basically who the twin married, right, or who you know, who the twin who the twin had child uh, children with, and those general the, those uh, studies generally do find a bit larger effect for upbringing than the other methods. So I talk about those. Uh, there's still a lot of methodological controversy about like couldn't it just be the genes of the spouse of the twin that's explaining what's going on, uh, and you know on, honest, honestly like like this is still so cutting edge that I didn't uh, you know didn't think that I was. The right person to adjudicate whether or not sure. uh, the, you know this the, this approach is you know is actually uh, is actually working or not. But I just want I, I drew readers' attention to it, cited a lot of papers, so they can go and check them out for themselves. So I you know I have no pro- I accept your point about the taking cheap shots in empirical liter- in empirical work and uh, you would never take a cheap shot, Russ. Well, I, it could appear to be a cheap shot, it's which is appear. almost as bad. Too, too <laughs> almost as bad. Uh, but let's talk about some specifics of parenting. I, I don't have any trouble. With um, accepting the reality that that and any parent uh, who has more than one child who's not a twin sees how different uh, kids are within any within your family. Oh yeah, and and in ways that outsiders can't appreciate. Because right. and even though you try to raise them the same, right? You know, like, correct. Yes, and yeah. they they clearly have natures uh, which mm-hmm. are unique to each child. Uh, they have tastes. They have propensities. Um, and uh, you know, just take a more an obvious example. If if you love athletics, which I think you don't, right? <laughs> but if you had an, a desire that all your kids would would play varsity sports in high school and ideally get a, a Division One scholarship, you may be confronted with the fact that some of your children may not have the ability to do that. Others would argue or the personality but, or the personality wouldn't enjoy it, et cetera. I just want to put in a plug for um, Andrea Agassi's uh, extraordinary memoir. Really. Uh, enjoyable book i think it's called open if i remember correctly where he talks about uh evil you could call he doesn't literally call it this but evil parenting where parent has decided a very common phenomenon that their child's going to be successful or something clearly the parent did have that influence mm-hmm. in that case you see the the you know it's a selection bias you see the child that became a star tennis mm-hmm. player um but the child's not very happy and right. doesn't like his father very much as, as a result mm-hmm. of that so we all understand that nature matters but I want to get to the heart of your argument, which is that nurture is, to a large extent, perhaps irrelevant. And I want to ask you, as a parent mm-hmm. and as a book, uh, an author of a book on parenting, the standard things that I think most people find troublesome, burdensome about parenting are things like uh, diaper changing when they're young mm-hmm. and the inability to travel, which is the example you talk about in the book mm-hmm. – uh, as children get older, 
the issues of carpooling and schlepping, um, the as we talked earlier, the riding roughshod over. Um, you know, I read a, I read books to my kids every single night of their young lives. I enjoyed it most nights, but I did it on nights when I didn't want to do it because I thought it was good for them. Are these kind? These are very. No one really thinks. I don't think in a in a twin study you could measure the impact of these mm-hmm. things. So I'm kind of just going by feel here, right? And do we have any? Do you have any things to say about mm-hmm. those things? Uh, sure. So you know, I would never say that parenting is irrelevant. Uh, actually, one of the main things that I pick, you know, that I that I got out of the research is this: uh, there is there is you know, one very meaningful effect that parents have on their kids, and this is how their kids feel about and remember them. And this is also actually you know, there. There's actual you know, twin adoption research on this point. And, I remember their parents. Yes, yes, and and this is and this is a long lasting effect. There's a Swedish twin study of Swedes in their 50s and 60s and 70s, and basically as long as you grew up in the same household, uh, regardless of how related you were, you tended to have uh, pretty similar views about whether your parents were kind to you, whether they tre- whether whether they spent time with you, whether they treated you well. And you know, what, they, never, what, they never went to Cinderella's house. Yes, but, never, never you know, went to Cinderella's but, yeah, house. But, sure. That's right. uh, well, I mean, of course, it could be the you know, the opposite of of that, and you remember that too. Uh, so, well, you know, what I really got out of this is you know, you know, the irony of the parent who pushes their kid really hard on a bunch of dimensions where parents don't actually have much much long run impact, but in the process winds up making that we're messing up the relationship of the child and making the child feel bad and and just not and the child doesn't enjoy the experience and doesn't feel comfortable to be around you when 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 you're when you're older. So. You know, you do want to be the person where the ringtone on your child's cell phone is like Darth Vader, the Darth Vader uh, yeah. tune. Yeah, you, you, so you're, 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 you're the composer, Russ. So uh, yeah, you know, if, you, if, you want, if you want to hum it, I'll let you. <laughs> you mean this one? You mean dun, 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 Yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah, that one. Um, <laughs> do you get the breathing? <laughs> so, I mean, the interesting thing about that, I mean, we're at a funny point in American parenting um, culture where – we have this, what I think is a bizarre dysfunctional idea that parents should totally push their kids to, you know, win a Nobel Prize, um, uh, land in, in Carnegie, uh, at Carnegie Hall, and uh, and be the quarterback of uh, of a championship. All three, right? Uh, all three, yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> ideally, because then you really can get into a good school. We have that view. At the same time, we have a view of parenting that I see very commonly of I want my kids to like me. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a bad idea as a parent. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's yeah, our. I think it's a lot, lot more important than people realize. Which uh, that that, you're, that you know, trying to make your kids like you. So why is that? So is that, what I was going to say yeah. though is that I think there's this strange tension between drive your kids mm-hmm. nuts so that they'll be successful mm-hmm. versus pamper your kids so that they'll like you, and those two don't go together. Right. I mean, like, I don't even know so much that it's pampering as I mean, I think, I think you know, like one of the you know, people people like being treated with kindness and respect. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult. This is this you know, this is the way that almost everyone prefers to be treated. Absolutely. And you know, so, you know, my 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 thing is you know, as a parent, you know, I want to show you like how good another human being, one human being, can be to another. You know, I like I you know that you know that 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 is that is what I'm going for. I mean, there's this saying that parents often have. You know, I'm I'm your I'm your dad, not your friend. I mean, to me, yeah, I agree the, with the, that yeah, saying. Yeah, right. you know, to so me, the ahead. lesson of this is, well, you know, like I like the, uh, the saying properly interpreted. I like, which is, look, you will never have a friend that is as good to, that is as good to you as I will be to you, right? You know, I, I really love you. I want I want you to be happy. I'm I'm never going to treat you with the cruelty that uh, that other people like are likely to, likely likely to treat you with. My love is unco- my love is unconditional. Yes, you know, my my love is unconditional. But that doesn't uh, mean that I bring you a six pack when you're 14 uh, to go and drive in the that, car. That, yes, or, or ice cream right. when you're when you're four. So, yes. but well, that but that you, in, you wouldn't give ice cream to a four year old. That's not every night. Yes, not, not every, every night. night. Occasionally, yes. it's a treat. Yes, if they treated me well enough, yes, Brian. They, they treated you well enough. <laughs> now, I do think there's a yes. fascinating tension that doesn't get talked about enough, and, and uh, that we like ruling other people's lives. Mm-hmm. So, one of the problems I think in parenting that people fail at, including all all of Maybe all of us in the room, maybe just me, is sometimes we want our kids to do our will. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's good for the kid or not, it's what I want, perhaps, or whether it's something I think they're supposed to want, whatever it is. And I, I impose yeah. my will to their detriment. Yeah, I mean, uh, if I mean, if your will is uh, you, I want you to treat me like a, like a, like a fellow human being, and don't uh, and you know, and don't treat me badly. You know, I mean, I I totally agree with that. So I mean, like, well, you know, like one thing that shocked me is to seeing how much abuse parents will tolerate at the hands of their of their kids. I've seen, I know parents who let their kids punch and kick them, and they don't stop yeah, them. I don't understand that. Yes, uh, it does happen. It's it's weird, it ha- but it happens. Yeah, we, neither of us would call that being a good friend. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm your best friend. You can kick me, <laughs> right? You can scream at me. You can be abusive, <laughs> right? But. Uh, 
Sorry, 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 sorry. I took us way off the track. It's okay. um, I I was asking the question that, you know, a lot of things that I think are are, make parenting challenging, they're not Mm -hmm. fun. They're not fun for the kid. They're not Mm -hmm. fun for the parent. Or they're fun for one but not the other. And as a result, there's an inevitable tension that I I don't think you should. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. right. So, one thing about bending kids to your will, like, you know, if it's not a matter of getting your, your child to treat other people decently, I really would say it's important to get over that. Uh, you know, trying to change other people in general just doesn't work out that well. People resent it. Uh, you know, like you know, the idea of marrying another person in order to change them is is, got, is one of the most, fool, most, fool, most foolish ideas that you can adopt. And what I want to saying is that the idea is, is actually a, like you know, is, you know, you try you know like thinking that your child is very different from all other humans. And this is the one human that it does make sense to try to totally re- re- remold them. That is uh, that is equally naive and equally likely to blow up in your face. So, but what about the fact that when you're between the ages of uh, zero and for some of us zero and fifty, but let's just choose eighteen, <laughs> between zero and eighteen, your, your ability to assess long run benefits um, not very good, and so mm-hmm. there are many things I can think of myself where my parents did things for me that at the time I wasn't too happy about. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't, but they didn't do anything cruel to me. They certainly yes. didn't force me to take uh, violin lessons, an instrument I w- wouldn't be very good at, or, or do things that I that I hated. But they do, they did many things mm-hmm. that I'm really glad that they encouraged me to do, even though at the time I wasn't so excited about them. Uh, sure. So you know, the, the lesson we really get from adoption twin research is just that there's a very wide, vaguely normal range where all parent, parent, parenting styles are about equally okay. Outside of this range, of course, to say parents who say you don't have to go to school. You know, it's up to you if you want to go to school, or it's up to you whether you want to eat anything other than candy, candy all day yeah. long. So, you know, I do say, like, within this vaguely normal range, uh, there really is a lot of flexibility, and you just don't have to beat yourself up that much if you want to do one thing rather than another. And all, you know, and it does make sense to focus on doing things that really are fun for the whole family rather than, uh, you know, things that, you know, like, either the child wants to do and make the parents miserable or the, like that, that the parent really wants, but it makes, it makes the child miserable. Right, you know, it just just isn't a great. You know, just isn't a really a great way to you know, have a have a, a pleasant, harmonious family. Well, let's shift gears. Let's talk about safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the oft observed trends in American parenting is um, a change in how we how much freedom we give to our kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was ten years old, living in Lexington, Massachusetts, uh, my parents put my friend uh, David and I on a bus. We got to a subway station, I think, in Arlington. We rode down to Fenway Park and went to a baseball game by ourselves in downtown Boston at the age of 10. Wow. A glorious stadium, Fenway Park, I should mention here in April as we, as we do this interview. Um, most parents, this parent, would struggle to give my mm-hmm. kids that freedom. Uh, is that a mistake? Uh, is it true that that trend is there? Mm-hmm. And why do you think people misinterpret some of the impacts of, of that protectiveness about safety and other issues. All right. So in terms of really good data about whether parents are treating the kids differently, I, at least at least I didn't come across any, but I, I'm, I'm totally convinced and I don't th- I think basically, basically I don't think I've encountered anyone who deny that there's been a big change in the amount of independence that uh, we give to kids. So you know, what, I, what I'd say here is you know, like, certainly like, like, you know, like if, if a parent is just like very uncomfortable allowing something, then that by itself, uh, you know, like, you know, like, you know, if it's a small benefit of the child and the parent is just sweating bullets over it, then saying you can't do it, I, I mean, I don't, I, I think that's perfectly fine. Like, the parent shouldn't have to sit there suffering. You know, even if someone says, well, they'll almost certainly get back, it's like, well, yeah, I'm, meanwhile, I'm, just, I'm, I'm gonna be just, just so worried yeah. about it. But uh, what we can say is, uh, in, you know, in terms, you know, like, you know, even if you are, you know, a fretful parent, it still makes sense to look at the actual, uh, actual numbers, uh, you know, actual risks when you decide how, you know, what, what kinds of things you're going to let your kid do and what kinds of things you're not going to let your kid do. So, I mean, first of all, some really good news that I talk about in the book is that even though we think about the 50s as being an idyllic age, uh, the death rate for kids was about five times as high as it is today. You know, most of that comes from like, like, the, like almost all that comes from disease, and then then a bit more from accidents. The elimination of disease yes. and the reduction in accidents, right? So and the, the consequence yeah, of yes. accidents, obviously. Yes, also. and then um, you, so you know, so, so uh, deaths from crime and suicide are actually a little bit up. Not to freak people up, but uh, free people out. But remember, since, the the, since that almost never happens, yeah. you can have you can have a fifty percent increase, and it still is microscopic. So like you really like disease and you know disease above all, and then accidents second you know, secondarily. Are the main risks that children face, uh, you know, faced in the past and actually continue to face. 
Uh, so, you know, like in the fifties, like a lot of kids still died of contagious disease. It was, yeah. it was, it was still quite common in those days. So, I mean, just step one is just breathe a sigh of relief. It's not true. The modern world is like, is like awful compared to, to the idyllic fifties. The fifties were scary. Today is actually comparatively, uh, you know, like much safer. So you just, just, just feel happy about that. Even if, even if you're not going to let your kids take any extra risks, at least say, isn't it great that we're not in the fifties? Yeah. Well, but my kids, uh, when I was a, a young boy, we used, my sister and brother and I used to fight over who would get to lay in the back shelf where the back window was. None of us had seatbelts on. Uh, now <laughs> yes, parents yes. obsessively mm-hmm. do boss their kids around and make them wear seatbelts. Yep. Yes. I mean, so for, so for car accidents, I would say there's at least some, some, some very suggestive data that, uh, you know, safer cars and, you know, and probably bearing seatbelts actually have saved a considerable number sure, of lives. No doubt. Uh, so, I mean, well, here, here's what was most striking to me. Uh, you know, deaths from accidents fell, fell, fell the most for younger kids. And then basically for older teenagers, uh, you know, like, you know, they're, they're safer than they were in the fifties, but the, those accident rates fell, you know, deaths from accidents fell quite a bit less. And at least seems very plausible to look at that and say, yeah, well, those are the ages where the kids actually start deciding for themselves whether they want to apply Absolutely. modern safety. And again, you know, so this is not certain, but, you know, basically kids where their parents can boss them around on their safety, their accident rates have, uh, you know, did fall more. Yeah. So that's uh, you know, so you know, something, something we're thinking about. But still, there are a lot of risks the parents worry about that are so unrealistic and just cause needless suffering, and you prevent kids from doing things that are fun. So or from having yeah, kids yeah. at all because yes. you're afraid of. Them. Yeah, I mean, like, like yeah, may, may happen to some people who are especially paranoid. Is they just watch so much news and so much Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, and then they say, "How can you bring a child into this world?" Well, I mean, this is a world where horrible things happen on the news and on and and, and on fictional crime shows. But uh, you know, like in large numbers, but not so much in actual life, where things where those things are phenomenally rare. So, I mean, probably the case where parents are most bizarrely overworried is you know, stranger danger, like you right. know, that, that, Milk so, that yeah, that, yeah, that someone, some, some horrible uh, person is going to come and abduct your child and do terrible things to your child. Uh, again, like you know, the vision is so is so awful, but it literally is a one in a million per year event. So, I mean, Maybe essentially, less. yeah, I think it's less than one in a million. Let's see. I mean. Uh, see, I, do, I mean that 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 is the number that I, that I remember from. Okay. from well, that's you know, a small yeah, yes. it's a small yeah, number. Yes, I mean you know, so, uh, yeah, so, you know, you know, so very very small. I mean, basically, your your child is about a hundred times as likely to die in a car crash. So saying you know, like, and saying like, I can't let my, you know, let my child go down to the mailbox to get the mail, or even saying I can't leave my eight year old home alone while I go shopping. Sure. Uh, yeah, you know, if your eight year old is responsible enough that they aren't going to you know start like run around crazy. I mean, it, it literally is true that your child is probably more likely to uh, be hurt in a car crash on the on the way to the grocery sure. store than Absolutely. than than that uh, you know that anyone is going to break into the house while you're away for an hour. Or and the, yeah. and you know, so it's, 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 it's like in terms of just keeping your child safe. Fa- as long as it's not family yeah. services, who, yes. who, that would be a bad consequence, uh, unfortunately or not. But in today's world, that is yes. the, that is the perception. Of course, one argument is the reason that these. Odds are so small because we don't let our kids out, so the marauding evil mm-hmm. people can't get at them because we're they yeah, don't get to go down to Fenway Park on yes. their own. What I say there is just there's there's so many chinks in the armor. You know, just like when you think about terrorism, you might say airport security is the reason why there've been like basically no deaths from terrorism in the U.S. There's so many ways that a terrorist could get in and do right. horrible things, and we right. don't do anything about it. That saying that the security is the reason for the improvement just doesn't it just seems unreasonable. Like if there were, if someone really wanted to do something terrible, there's so many other ways that you could do it, and yet it doesn't happen. I'm suggesting there just aren't that many people motivated to do it. Yeah, agreed. either that or they're a complete idiots with no imagination. Another. Always a possibility. <laughs> um, let, let's move on because I want to get to a, 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 a central issue that I think a lot of people are worried about that we haven't touched on yet, which is um, sort of a non-selfish reason you might say to mm-hmm. to have. Uh, fewer kids, which is it's good for the planet to mm-hmm. have small families, and that people like you, Brian, who are encouraging people uh, to to have more children, you're you're really doing a terrible thing mm-hmm. because they're bad for the planet. All right, so I mean, I, so I take that that complaint seriously, and also, you know, like you know, one thing that I noticed, I think there are some people who would like to have more kids and think that they would enjoy it, but they feel guilty about it, so they say, "All right, I can only have one. I'd like to have more, but but I can't." Or so, two, but yes, not more yes, than twos. Yes, but, you know, but you know, so here the crucial question really is: you know, so what is the effect of, of adding one more person to the planet? Mm-hmm. Right, and here I am, uh, you know, heavily influenced by the economist Julian Simon, uh, who uh, you know, so about now, now it's about thirty years ago, uh, you know, in, in his book The Ultimate Resource, I think, you know, very powerfully argued that actually more people make the world a better place, and we are underpopulated, or in economic terms, that actually the net externality of adding another child to the world is positive rather than negative. 
So you know, where, where, does this, where does this stuff come from? And I should also say that Julian Simon was a trailblazer, but now there's many other economists who have made similar arguments. So you know, Michael Kramer, Paul Romer, and you know, so you know, these arguments are much more accepted. Although often they don't really give Simon the credit that he deserves. But so I mean, you know, it's probably you know, like you know, the, the the classic argument against population, saying that more people are bad, is just that population causes poverty. More people. Uh, you know, all sharing all sharing a fixed pie resources means that everyone gets bigger a smart, denominator, a slice. Bigger denominator. Yes, you know, yeah. it's just, just a matter of math. Yeah. So, uh, the you know, so the, so like, you know, the first problem with this is, of course, that people eventually grow up and produce. Yeah. But then, like like a sophisticated person on this, say, well, of course they do produce, but uh, there's dimin- you know, there's diminishing marginal product, and so still, on average, people are going to uh, have you know have, you know have, have have less consumption when there's more people. And then the next argument yes. is they may produce more, but eventually there'll be fewer resources left yes, for other yeah, people. Yeah, to so, use yeah, we, we can come to come to that shortly. Yeah. Uh, but the you know, the argument that um, that many that many many economists have now made, you know, probably beginning with Julian Simon, uh, the technical term is endogenous growth theory, and it just says, look. Uh, what, well, the main thing we've learned, or probably the most important thing we've learned in the study of economic growth, is that the main difference between the world of today and the world of 200 years ago is just ideas. It's just the, the reason why we are, we are richer today than we were in the past is because we now know more than we used to. We know how one farmer can grow enough food to feed hundreds of people. We know how to make iPads. We know how to make flying machines. The knowledge is really the crucial difference between the world of today and the world of the past. Now, once you buy this idea, then you, then you start thinking, well, it's really important that this flow of new ideas keeps coming. And we should be really grateful for whatever gave us this flow of new ideas. And then if you say, well, so where do these ideas come from? Uh, the answer, of course, is people. Right? And you know, the simple thought experiment is just imagine deleting half the names in your music collection. Imagine deleting half the names in a dictionary of scientific achievement. Imagine dict- deleting half the names in technological progress and business success. And realizing that uh, eventually someone might have come along and done something similar, but it would have taken a while and, and the, the progress would have been slowed down. Now, the problem with that argument, of course, is that most of the people who are doing the things you're talking about are not random draws to the population. They're from uh, the right-hand tail. Uh, well, so so, you know, so that, that, that argument leads to a horrific idea, which I'm against, mm-hmm. but it, it does lead some to argue that, therefore, we should encourage some people to have more more mm-hmm. larger families, but not everyone. Right. So, uh, a fair point, although I would say that there's a lot more randomness in the distribution of, uh, of incredible creative achievement than you might think. Absolutely. And it's not, just, it's it not just like the top 1%. That's you know, correct. It it's really is scattered throughout the distribution, and especially for truly remarkable achievement. You know, just by definition, you can't predict truly remarkable achievement very well because it hardly ever happens. And there's always tons of people who are really similar to, say, Nobel Prize winners who didn't actually uh, achieve yeah. at that level. Uh, but the other thing is that just being a regular consumer also ta- also encourages the production of ideas yeah, by, because think, they're customers. Yeah, that's I think is the more powerful. Right. So yeah. So so uh, so so, so, so in the book, I talk about this old show Gilligan's Island. I I bet you watched it, Russ. A couple times, but not yes. much because my parents cared about my future and yes. limited my TV watching. Fools that they were. Yes. I don't know why they were so dis- – my, you know, yeah, my, 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 my parents cared a bit less. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it all shows. But. Yeah. So on Gilligan's Island, there were seven people stranded on an island, including the professor who's a technological genius. And uh-huh. he does come up with many amazing inventions on this island. But here is the interesting economic point. Suppose the professor knows that he could spend a year of his life to come up with an idea worth $1 per person that actually buys it. On the island, the total value of a year of his effort is seven dollars, counting his own counting his own value. Yeah. So, like you know, basically, he'd be better off picking coconuts as long as he's stuck on that island. But if he could get off of that island, that idea is worth seven billion dollars. Yeah. No, that's the. Uh, I think that's a. And, and I just want to mention, I, I fought off the urge to hum the theme song in the background. <laughs> we're doing theme songs. Today. Right. So, I mean, so that's the main thing that I have to say about uh, population poverty. Again, in the sh- in the very short run, uh, you know, a baby a baby uh, consumes resources but does not produce. So, they don't, babies don't have jobs. So, in the short run, uh, well, clear, clearly, kids do reduce uh, average average earnings. Yeah, but they don't produce output. They do produce joy and love. Uh, right. Right. Works. But again, in terms of just material living standards. Yeah. Uh, but the key thing to remember is that you know not you know, not only do they grow up and produce, but also you know this child might actually be someone who comes up with an idea that seven billion people can profit from. Right? You know, the wonderful thing about ideas is that once they're around, uh, basically the, you know the marginal cost of spreading them is really low. Right? Uh, but you know even even if he doesn't, you know this person, you know he's a consumer who winds up uh, adding a little bit more weight to the scales uh, for you know, that encourage people, to, you know people who are creative, to do their thing. What now, about what about global warming? Uh, let's see. Well, why don't we just do uh, population and po- population and the environment generally? Yeah. So, there you you know, go. so basically, what I say here is, the, you know, there there are some problems uh, with the environment that are just overstated, and then there's some others that are genuine, but where 
trying to reduce the number of people in order to handle them is just using a sword to kill a mosquito. So first of all, overstated problems. Uh, one of the things that Julian Simon started and which has been backed up by later research is it's just not true that we're running out of resources. Uh, like over the last 150 years, the, uh, pr- the, the price of food, fuel, and minerals has fallen about has, has actually fallen by about one percent, adjusting for inflation on average. Of course, there's price spikes, which every, is what every year. By, yeah, like the, annu- the the average annual price fall of resources is about one percent, uh, averaging over 150 years. Of course, there's always price spikes, so it's always possible for Chicken Little to run around and say, "See, the you know the price of gas is up right now. It's the end." That means, yeah, right. But they've always been wrong <laughs> over the last you know, 150 years. Chicken Little's been wrong, and resources really do get cheaper over time. Uh, and 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 he, here I, mean, I often remember a great line from I think a Saudi oil minister saying like you know the Stone Age ended but not for lack of stones. Uh, yeah. You come up with something better. So I mean like we're not running out of not running out of resources. And also you know air and water quality have actually been improving for decades even though population is in the, in the first world anyway even though population has been going up. So clearly there is oh, there is a way to uh, you know to handle to deal with genuine environmental problems without reducing the number of people. And since we're both economists, I'll say that you know like economists. Standard, you know, standard story about the cheapest way to do it is with something like a pollution tax or congestion charge, where you say, look, here's a person, he does a thousand great things, he does three bad things, saying it's, it would be better if he had never been born is, is just going way overboard. Like, if you're concerned about the three bad things that he does, why don't we focus specifically on them, raise the cost of doing those bad things, and then say, hey, you know, like, still, like, the person overall is, 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 still, is still adds to the world, and the person enjoys his life, and we like him. Why don't we just focus on discouraging bad things instead of throwing out almost literally the baby with the bathwater and saying, like, you'll drive a car one day. It'd be better if you not exist. It's like, that's just one thing. There's so many other things that I'll do that are good. So why why not focus on raising the cost of doing bad things rather than uh, trying to cut down a population? And that's, I I think, the smart answer for global warming is... Like, let's look for the cheapest way of doing this. So, you know, you know so like, like you know, pollution taxes are one way. I also am a big fan of what uh, you know, Dubner and Levitt talk about in Super Freakonomics, which is uh, geoengineering, which is another very cheap way of handling global warming, which, again, we probably don't want to get into. We don't but, want to get into, especially since yeah, we've spent a lot of time talking about but the cost, the cost, the cost about what is we low, can and it just might work. <laughs> okay, but we're almost out of time. I want you to close and give your, uh, your four uh, piece of advice for easier parenting. Uh, sure. All right. So first one that comes along really, really early is, uh, is sleep. Okay. Now I know a lot of parents who do lose about three years of sleep per child. And if you had to lose three years of sleep per child, I can understand why you wouldn't want to have any additional kids past the first or maybe where even the first kid would really scare you. So sleep deprivation does bother me. I had to get up a little early to be here, Russ. So it's a little, that, little, little tough, a little tough on me. Not that bad though. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, years so, of practice. So, yes. Okay. So here, so here there is, uh, an experimentally tested method of getting kids to sleep that really does work when tried. It's called the Ferber method. Uh, basically, the idea is uh, when you put your kid down to sleep, if he cries, uh, you, know, you can't do this on an infant because an infant really does need to wake up a few times during the night to feed. But by the time a kid is three months, put him in his crib. If he cries, let him cry for five or ten minutes, comfort him, then leave and repeat until he sleeps through the night. And within a very short time, amount of time, like a, a, large, a large fraction of kids will respond to this and will sleep through the night. And you can save yourself like two, ye- uh, two years, nine months worth yeah. of sleep deprivation by yeah. doing this. Work for us. Right? And It'll the, be I, tough and, there. It requires then, and, some short-term suffering. That noise is designed, that yes. wah-wah is designed to pierce your heart. And it oh, does. Yeah. It's very yes, effective. Uh, I mean, something else that we actually did before our, our third child was born is we installed solid wood doors in all the kids' there, bedrooms. There you go. That solves the problem. <laughs> to, uh, to, reduce the, to reduce the noise. Uh, it, does, it, does, it, does, it does make it easier. So, you know, so the, the, sleep. yeah, and 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 again, if you know the twin uh, twin twin evidence on and adoption evidence on happiness, the idea that that the fact that your kid wasn't picked up when he was three months old when he cried, and that will turn him into a miserable adult who feels no security and feels like other people don't love him, that's just crazy. Uh, so that so you know, sleep is one thing. I think it's a big deal. Uh, I also talk about discipline. So, I mean, many people say that you just think you should let your kids run around wild, don't you, Brian? I said no, no. What I think is, you know, like. Uh, well, you, know, you should focus on making making them making your children into decent roommates today, right? Either there, you really do have an effect. So, and, and again, there's a, you know good actually experimentally tested work on on the you know confirming the basic common sense point that you know clear, consistent, mild discipline really does work, and even bad kids do respond to it, and it does substantially improve their behavior. Of course, some kids are just more trouble than others. Yeah. 
but still, uh, the naughty corner does work. Uh, the main catch is you just have to be consistent about it. Yes, so, you, you know, if you, if you like discipline your kids for a while and then their behavior improves and then you stop disciplining them, they will go back to what they were doing before. So don't, you know, like, and don't do discipline thinking this is going to change what they're like when they're 30. You know, even if you don't, if you never discipline your child, when your child's 30, he probably won't run around hitting people. That's yeah. just not what 30 year olds do. Work but, well. but you don't want him hitting people now. Like, <laughs> you know, that's, 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 that is unpleasant. Yeah. It's actually you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, then I, I talk about activities. Mm-hmm. So when your basic point here is, like, uh, you know, if you don't like an activity, your child doesn't like it, and the twin and option evidence is, you know, like, there's just little long run, little long run effect of parents on the outcomes that you care about, you can guiltlessly and responsibly say, we're just not going to do this activity anymore, and you know, and uh, and what if your kid watches TV instead? That's okay too. Right? It's okay if your kid watches The Simpsons for an hour instead of going of uh, going to ballet class. That's just like there's. There's no reason to think that you are scarring that child for life, that you're depressing your IQ or educational achievement or success in work or anything like that. And you're just because it feels good doesn't mean it's bad. Okay. There are plenty of things that, yes, some things hurt that are good for you, but it is not a general rule. <laughs> and, uh, and the fact that you don't want to dig a ditch and fill it in again does not make you lazy. I, I say it just makes you wise. Um, the, you know, the last thing to talk about is uh, supervision. So we talked about it a little bit, but I'm a big fan of uh, Lenore Skenazi, who's ranked as the most as the number one controversial mommy blogger. She wrote a book called Free Range Kids. She's the one who actually uh, achieved infamy for allowing her nine year old son uh, to ride the New York subway alone. Like me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you Google uh, "worst mom in America," she's the first hit. Yeah. Okay, so you know, so you know, her basic point. I mean, so my kids wouldn't want to ride the subway alone, and I, I'm not. I'm not someone who would, like push them and say you're going to learn to be you know, you're tough <laughs> or anything like this. But I mean, the basic point that kids uh, absolutely can handle more independence than we currently give the, give them is right. They they don't need the amount of supervision we give them. It's okay to let your kids just do their own thing for, uh, for you know for you know for a lot of the day. Right. And, you know, and again, if you, if you need to relax and you're stressed out, it is better really for everyone if you go and relax and have your cup of tea, your kid does something he likes, than if you go and drag your kid to an event that he doesn't want to go to, you're too tired to go to, and then you wind up exploding your child because he changed the radio station. <laughs> So, and oh yeah, oh yeah, just just one last thing. Yeah. One of the most the, the, the most interesting thing that I learned about kids in in writing this book is there's something called the Ask the Children survey. They actually basically ask kids to grade their parents, uh-huh. right? And most parents assume that their children child's main complaint is my parents don't spend enough time with me. That was a very rare complaint. Kids feel like they do get enough face time. The main complaints the kids have about their parents is their parents are too tired, too stressed, and they and they have very bad t- and they have bad tempers, mm-hmm. right? And I think the parents could go a long way towards. May, uh, towards getting better grades from their kids, if the if the parents themselves would just cut themselves some slack, not only would it be easier for you, but your child would feel better about you if you had a better attitude, right? And you should be you should be mature and adult enough to realize what your kid does not, which is when you do something that you don't want to do when you're really tired, you might wind up lashing out at them, even though this is your child that you love. My guest today has been Brian Kaplan. Brian, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>